0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you do not have your own copy of the scriptures, you can find a copy of uh, the scriptures there underneath your seats, and this will be on page 984 in the Blue Bible. If you do not have a copy, that is our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of the scriptures. Colossians chapter 3, and we will be in verses 1 through 17 today. I'm not going to read the whole text to start. We have quite a bit in front of us, but I'll make sure we go through it step by step and I'll read it as we cover it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. For those of you just joining us today, we've been studying through the book of Colossians the past few months. We just have been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This was a letter written by Paul to the church at Colossae, and he really was trying to do two major things there. One, He was trying to correct a major heresy that was plaguing the church. And two, he was providing practical instructions to them on how to live out their faith. The theme of the book is the fullness and sufficiency of Christ. We've seen so far that the fullness of God is displayed in Christ, and he alone is sufficient to save anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. Thus far, Paul's really been focusing on that first purpose, which is correcting the Colossian heresy. It was known as the Colossian heresy because it was specific really to the church there, Colossae. It involved adding Jewish and pagan and uh, cultural heretical practices into Christianity. It was adding those on and saying that these things made one holier. We've seen things such as Jewish ceremonialism, saying you had to keep certain dietary restrictions or certain holidays. We've seen even the practice of worshiping angels being added on. And we've also seen asceticism, which is just harsh treatment of the body. To make one more godly, so to speak. Paul has been correcting all of these by pointing to worshiping Jesus Christ alone. However, having right beliefs is not enough for the Christian life. Right beliefs must be accompanied by Christian living. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Thus it is of great importance that one's belief match his practice lest one's Practice might actually discount all of their beliefs and their preaching. So, what should a Christian's life look like? Today's passage answers that very question. This is where Paul gets his attention to next. The main point of this passage is that a Christian's life must reflect his heavenly position in Christ. A Christian's life must reflect his heavenly position in Christ. Paul explains this in three points, which are the blanks in your outline if you're following along on the back. First, Paul establishes the principle for Christian living in verses one through four. So your blank is principle. Second, Paul commands the church to put sin to death in verses five through 11. Thirdly, Paul commands the church to put on Christ. So your blanks are principle for Christian living, Puts into death and put on Christ. I briefly mentioned this earlier, but the amount of text we have before us is quite large. Um, I make, make it similar to a like huge all-you-can-eat buffet, as in there's all these different things that we can explore. It is not like a steak dinner where we're gonna just really dive in and enjoy one piece. It's like a huge buffet where we're gonna sample little bits just to just to uh, see what we can get from them. I will try to give you little places for extra study because there's a lot more here. Um, But that being said, I just want to set expectations for that's how we're going to walk through the text today. Let us pray. God in heaven, all of scripture is breathed out by you. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Thank you for giving us your word. We pray, God, now that as we walk through it, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Please help me to speak clearly and to convey only what's in the text. God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of, of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight as we walk through this. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul starts his instruction by establishing the principle for Christian living. This principle is that since you are united with Christ, you must be like Christ's. Since you are united with Christ, you must be like Christ's. So starting in verse one, uh, he opens by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. I'm gonna stop right there halfway through the verse. What does that mean? What does it mean to be raised with Christ? Past tense have been raised. What this means is that you were spiritually dead and you now have been raised with Jesus Christ to eternal life. This is only true for Christians, those who are putting their faith in Christ alone for salvation. He starts with this and really starts focusing in on one part um, of, of the church, really only those who are putting their faith in Christ. So the point is that his instruction, everything that follows, only applies to Christians, those who are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. He continues with two commands, reading the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. He commands that we would seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So in light of your heavenly standing, because you've been raised with Christ, you're to seek the things that are above, where your life is. The mood of the verb makes clear, this is a command. This is not simply a suggestion. It's not simply Paul making a statement. This is Paul commanding the church to do something. The present tense makes clear that this is not a one-time activity. That's something you put on a list and check it off. This is something you are to be ongoing and continually doing. You are to be seeking the things that are above. Seeking really means all of your energy and all of your activities. It's as one would seek out treasure. One commentator helpfully explains this, that you are to seek things that are above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. So your body, your energy, your activities are supposed to be living these out. Secondly, we see in verse two, you're to set your minds, which refers to just thinking, be thinking on things that are above. So it's a fully united effort, mind and body, focusing on things that are above, not on earthly things. As an illustration, when Ruthie and I were first dating, she was away in Spain, helping a Christian school there. And I was here in Columbus, Ohio. While I was here in Columbus, Ohio, I was definitely thinking a lot about what was going on in her life. I was praying for her, I was thinking about ways I could encourage her, I was writing cards to her, buying things and sending them over. So while I was physically here, my mind and my effort was elsewhere. I was really excited. Other ways this happens are, when you're, on vac- when you're getting ready to go on vacation, it's the last day before you go on vacation, you're not really there at work on that last day. You're already on the beach. So here, we're to do it that same way. While we're here on earth, we're really to be living out the heavenly values. We're already there. Why are we to do this? Verse 3 gives two reasons. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're to seek the things that are above and set your mind on them because you've died. This is not a physical death, you're all here living and breathing. This is a spiritual death, which specifically refers to having your sin paid for and being dead to sin, so that it no longer reigns in your bodies. There's no doubt that the flesh still affects us. We still fight, we still struggle, but it no longer rules and reigns in our lives, nor can it condemn us any longer. Don't turn there, but I'll read one Cross reference for you, if you to jot it down if you'd like. Romans 6.6 helps give us context for this. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That language, crucified, sin being brought to nothing, that we're no longer enslaved, we no longer have sin as our master. We have a new master, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when he, Paul says you have died, thing you have died to sin. He is no longer the ruler in your life. Second cause is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. This means that your life can never be taken away from you. We can find help interpreting this verse from a song we often sing here in worship, Hold the Throne of God Above. In the third verse we sing, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God. Your life could be in no better hands than being in Christ's hands in heaven. Take great security in that, what that's the beauty of your life being hidden there. It's hidden there only temporarily though, as we see in verse four. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears again, when he comes to judge the world, you, Christian, will appear again with him. You'll appear not like tattered rags. You'll appear in glory as Christ comes in glory. What great hope we have to look forward to that day when Christ would come back in glory and we would be like him. So what do we do with this first point well, first, I want to talk to the unbelievers in the room. All of these promises, all these commands do not apply to you if you are not putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Your life is not hidden with Christ and God. When he comes back, you will not appear in glory. Rather, you will be condemned to hell because you have broken God's perfect law. You have sinned in thought and attitude in deed all it takes is one, and you deserve eternal judgment. But there is hope for you yet. God, being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, has sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, to take your place. He has paid the penalty of your sins with His crucifixion, and His perfect life, from His perfect, um, His perfect righteousness, from His perfect life, it can be credited to your accounts you would just put your faith and trust in him for salvation, and if you would turn away from your sins. So before we go any further in the text today, to you who are not putting your trust in Christ, we command and we call that you would. You would put your faith and trust in Christ. You would repent of your sin. Stop following your old ways and believe in Jesus that he may um, forgive you, that you may have eternal life with him. To the believers, what great assurance we have here, because in the past you have died and been raised with Christ. And because of the certainty of the future that you will appear with him in glory, seek and set your mind on the things that are above. Your life is already there. I've got one question for you. Are your life's priorities different than those of the world's? We need to set our mind on the things that are above, not things that are here on the earth. One example to make it a little bit more practical. Are you prioritizing laying up treasures in heaven over laying up treasures here on earth where moth and dust destroy, where the feet can steal? You must be. You must be accumulating things above. There's a lot more great, deep theological richness in these first four verses, so I'll leave you with, if you want to dive in a little bit more, look up the doctrine of the union with Christ. It's a beautiful picture of that. It's all throughout the scriptures, but that's our solid hope. So for further study, union with Christ is one of the main ideas and promises from this. Having established the principle for our Christian living, Paul now gives a little bit more detail into what that looks like. So moving on from the first point, we're now moving to point two of put sin to death. Starting in verse five, he says, from the onsets, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is a strong, shocking statement. It is active, it is intense, and it is a command. It is ensuring that what is earthly is in, in you is gone and will never come back again. One caution on this. This does not mean to mutilate the flesh. Paul just spent the last eight verses in chapter two condemning such practices. We are not to be chopping off limbs. This is talking about putting to death the fleshly desires at work within you and the sinful practices of your life. When I think of putting to death, aside from sin, I think of lawn care. I think of weeds in my yard. These just pop up. They will not just go away if I do nothing. If I do nothing, they will take over my entire yard. And they have been. It's intent to to put these to death must be intentional. I must be like researching, okay, how do I take care of clover versus dandelions? I must purchase the things. I must go and apply the spray or the fertilizer, and I must follow up and continually do this. I got to make sure that they're gone and that they never come back again. So this is a continual process. This is an intentional process. This is difficult. They don't just do it on their own. All the intentionality that I put into putting weeds into, to death in my yard, though, should be so small in comparison to how serious we must take putting to death the deeds of the flesh and the sin in our life. We must pursue this practice with an even greater tenacity. We must put to death what is earthly in us. What exactly is this? Continuing in verse 5, Paul lays out five earthly things that must be put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This list is not exhaustive, but it focuses mostly on sexual sins. To summarize this list, it refers to any sexual activity, thoughts, desires, or passions, contrary to the biblical standard of sexuality. This is not the world's standards. The biblical standard of sexuality is that sex is to be reserved for a heterosexual marriage, a man and his wife, it is not for people when they're dating. It is not for homosexuality. There, the biblical standard is very clear. We must be careful that this is what Paul is talking about. It is not the world standards. So let's put that to death. But why? Paul gives two reasons. Verses 6 and 7 say, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two, you once walked when you were living in them. So first... The wrath of God is coming on these sins. We love God because he first loved us and he gave himself up for us. Because we love him, we should not try to be doing things that provoke him to wrath. I love my wife, I love my family. I also don't intentionally do things to provoke them to anger, to wrath. We should have that same attitude, but even greater to God. So we should be putting these things to death because they bring wrath. Secondly, these things characterize your former life before Christ saved you. He's really tying this back to the principle he established in the first four verses. That since we've been raised with Christ, since we are new, our life should look different. We should not go back to the old practices that we had before we were saved. We should be doing the things that align with our new life. Paul continues by commanding the church to put away even more sins. Verses eight through nine says, you now must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So here's six more sins that the believers must put away. The first three talk about our attitudes towards others. It says anger, wrath, malice. These are evil intent towards others and include both the quick outbursts that happen, that immediate anger, the yelling, that flame up quickly and then go out. And this also refers to the smoldering bitterness that can underlie, like a volcano that's just bubbling, ready to erupt at any time. had to put those all away. The second three that he lists are about our speech, slander, obscene talk, and lying. These refer to derogatory speech, aimed at wounding or deceiving another. These are not things that should characterize a believer. These all cause great destruction to those around you, and they have no place in your life. Next, he gives more reasons, as Paul continues to do. He says, this is because you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. So these bad attitudes, these harmful attitudes, and the misuse of your tongue, these are characteristic of your old self. Since you've already put off the old self and put put on the new self when you were born again, these should not characterize you anymore. Rather, you must be renewed after the image of Christ the creator. One commentator helpfully explains this phrase about being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the process of present sanctification, whereby the believer grows in his knowledge of God and his will and becomes more Christ-like in his thoughts, words, and deeds. In other words, it's to be more like Christ, less like your old self. It's more like Christ, thoughts, words, and deeds. It's not just active, it's it's the heart attitude behind it. As we grow more in Christ, there's great unity and oneness and unity in him. Verse 11 says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So as we grow up in Christ, we are united together. This verse has four pairs of human associations over which Christians could divide. There's racial. Greek and Jew. There's religious tradition, circumcised and uncircumcised. There's cultural, barbarian and Scythian. And there's social, slave and free. In contrast to dividing over these, or categorizing ourselves in these ways, our allegiance to Christ should supersede any of these associations, and should be the highest allegiance in our life. There's a saying that we have that blood is thicker than water, Meaning that familial bonds should be greater than any like friend bonds or other bonds. Say that Christ's blood though is thicker still, that our allegiance should be greatest to him. So Christian, how are you putting to death the sins in your life? Are you being intentional to put them to death? Are you enlisting the help of others? Are you trying to avoid places where you know you're tempted? Are you being more intentional with putting to death the sins in your life than you are with your lawn? You should be. They do not just go away. Your sin will not just fade away. You must be active in putting it to death. But one caution, accountability, avoiding temptation, these things are good. But if you do not rely on the Spirit who is at work within you, you will fail. Romans 8.13 says, by the power of the Spirit who dwells in us, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So as you fight against sin in your life, you must be wor- using the power of the Spirit. You must be crying out to God, praying to him. You must be using the sword of the Spirit. You must be using the Word of God to put to death these sinful desires. of And beloved, do not divide over trivial things that the world is calling you to divide over devil wants you to be divided and divisive with one another, to put yourself into these categories. God wants you to be united in the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. United with other fellow believers, despite any difference in race or social standing or culture, would you be united one with another in Christ alone? We are not merely called to put sin to death, we're also called to put on Christ. And that's our last point. Put on Christ. First, we're to put on Christ's characters. And we see this in verses 12 through 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on is the same word for putting on clothes. So just as your body is adorned with clothing, let your life be adorned with these things. Put them on. The first five that are mentioned are attributes or adjectives, just characteristics of one's life. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. To summarize, this is being sensitive to those who are around you, being considerate of them, being subservient to one another, putting their needs before your own. And this is to be long-suffering with one another. The next two parts of Christ's character that we are to put on are actions. They're active. They're bearing with one another, which means to endure wrong and not to retaliate. And then there's to forgive one another. You See that when it says, if one has a complaint, forgiving one another. Which means you are not to hold your brother's sin against him, but to forgive it. This impl- this, the implication under here is that you will sin against one another, and you will be sinned against. You are to not let that cause division between you, but you are to forgive it, and you are to ask for forgiveness. How are we to forgive for one another? It says in the verse that we are to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. I'm gonna highlight three ways that the Lord has forgiven you that should characterize our forgiveness towards one another. First, the quantity of God's forgiveness. He has washed away every one of your sins. There is not one lingering left. They are all forgiven. He has forgiven us great in quality. You are white as snow now, fully cleansed and restored to a right relationship with God. So each one of your sins is fully forgiven, not partially. Thirdly, the quickness to forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no waiting. We confess, He forgives. And we must have the same attitude. If if another confesses to us, we must be quick to forgive, just as we have been forgiven quickly when we call out and ask for forgiveness. Lastly, we're to put on love. This is the last attribute we're to put on. This is the love of sacrifice. This is the Greek word agape, which just means love. But the idea is to lay down your life for someone else. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's what this kind of love is. It's not the emotional, bubbly feelings. It's the sacrificing of yourself, the bettering of another. The phrase above all signifies priority. This is the most important thing that we're to be putting on. Christians are to be characterized by their love. And this binds together everything in perfect harmony. In other words, the only way that we can put on everything that has been mentioned so far, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, is by putting on love above all else. And it's like a belt that holds together an outfit perfectly. Moving on from Christ's character, Paul calls for the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ to be prioritized in our lives. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. Verse 15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. So first, we're to be ruled by the peace of Christ's. This is specifically in the context of keeping harmony within the body, with relationships, one with another. So when working through things with other believers, when working through issues, may we be ruled by the peace of Christ. May we be making peace one with another. Secondly, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So secondly, we see the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. The word of Christ the scripture. It's everything that God has spoken to his people. It's not just the red words in here, it's all the words. Dwell, I love this word, it means to find its home. It's very similar to the noun dwelling we get that from. Many of you have visited other places, whether vacation or stayed with family. When you're visiting, you're merely visiting. But when you're at home, you're dwelling in your home. That's a very different different way that you'd interact. So the word of Christ should be dwelling. It should be at home in your lives. To have have the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you must be in the word. This is an obvious point, but we don't want to miss it. You should be hearing the word. You should be reading the word. You should be studying the word. You should be meditating on it. Be memorizing it this does not come in and dwell by osmosis you have to put effort in to enjoy it the dwelling of the word of Christ should manifest in a couple things one is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom teaching is a more positive word it conveys imparting instruction to someone else saying hey here's new knowledge that you should know from the scriptures or knowledge that you already knew just reminding you of these things Admonishing, in contrast, is a strong warning or a reprimand. It's saying, brother, sister, your life is not in line with the word of God. This must be corrected. These both must take place in the church. It is not functioning well if only one is happening. Um, if we're only teaching or if we're only admonishing, these both work together in beautiful harmony and they must take place here. The dwelling of the word of Christ in you richly also manifests in singing, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Notice that it's with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is not just your voice. It's coming from a heartfelt gratitude to God for who he is and for what he has done in your life. Lastly, we have the all-encompassing command to do everything in the name of Christ. We read in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? It means to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. Many of us have water filters in our home. It takes the, the raw water, it holds on to the bad stuff the filter does, and the good stuff just kind of comes through, and that's the ones that we'll drink and uh, used to water our grass or bathe in, et cetera. We should have a filter like that, a Christ-like filter in us that thoughts, actions, attitudes should come through. Anything that is not in accordance with Christ's will should stick to that filter and should go no further. Anything that is in accordance should come through. That's what should be lived out in our lives. So Christian, beloved, how are you forgiving one another? Are you withholding attention, affection, or honor from one another? When they sin against you, when they ask for forgiveness, are you making them pay? No, I won't forgive. Not until you do these certain things. Are you, are you willing to forgive in the quantity just as Christ did? Or do you have the attitude of, I just can never forgive what was done to be there? What about the quality? Are you forgiving mostly, but you're still going to hold on to very little parts? Say, well, they asked for forgiveness, and I know they're sorry about it, and I know that they came to me. But I'm going to hold just this little bit against them just in case something happens again in the future. And are you forgiving quickly? As soon as someone comes to you and asking for forgiveness for wrong that they've done to you, are you immediately forgiving them? Or are you holding on, holding it against them, not being willing to, to forgive and restore the relationship? Beloved, Are you prioritizing the word of Christ in your life? I've spoken to a pastor who has confided that he was surprised about how much of his job was just telling Christians to read the Bible. We're very tempted to be distracted by all sorts of different things. I've got a lot of emails to check, got work to do, favorite hobbies. There's so much going on that it's easy to let all the carriers of this world choke out our time and our love for God and time in his word. Are you prioritizing doing these things that we've talked about? Reading, hearing, studying, memorizing, and meditating on it? Or is this just something you do Sunday mornings? It's been said from this before, uh, from this lectern, that memory verses are not just for kids. They're not just for the Sunday schools. We should be memorizing the scripture and letting that dwell richly in our lives. We should be prioritizing this above anything else that we would do during the day. It says... In the scriptures that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by, the, by every word that comes to the mouth of the Lord. Are you prioritizing this to the points that you are living by it as you would food? And brothers and sisters, are you easily teachable and are you easy to admonish? Or do you have it all figured out? You know how you stand on everything and you know that it's the right thing. Are you willing to be taught by the Word of God? Are you willing to learn? and possibly be corrected? Are you easy to admonish? Or do you strike fear in anyone who would ever dare cross you or ever dare show that your life is not in perfect harmony with the scriptures? Are you defensive when someone brings up something to you, the first thing out of your mouth is an excuse or justification for wrong behavior? For those of you who are married, what would your spouse say about you? Are you teachable? Are you admonishable? The flip side, are we teaching and admonishing one another? And are we doing this in all wisdom? Or are we just doing this flippantly when we feel like it? We're based on our feelings, casually going about it, not prayerfully seeking it, but just desiring to correct preferences in other people. Are we asking God for wisdom as we teach and admonish one another? We must be. This must be done in all wisdom. We've seen today from this passage that a Christian is not defined merely by what he believes, but also by how he lives. So Christian, seek and set your mind on things that are above, not here on earth. Put to death the sinful thoughts and practices of the flesh and put on Christ. May you do this all by the power of the Spirit who dwells within you, and may God be glorified in you and in your life. In Christ's name we pray. Well, let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths here, the admonitions, the commands. God, we know that if we were to carry these out just by our flesh, that we would fail. So, Spirit, help us, equip us to battle the desires of our flesh. Would you rule and reign in our lives? Help us to put on Christ. And would we rejoice in being dead to sin and alive in Christ? Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for us. In Jesus' name we pray.